0: hi brady you ready to go
1: i'm ready to go wait oh my actually gosh, this, is, this is epic. no go for it i'm ready to go
0: hi brady how are you doing i'm doing great i'm really excited about this are you in a boat by the way right now i feel like the last time we spoke you were in a boat
1: Uh, I like boats. Um, It's raining outside, so I I guess I could be at sea, but no, I'm not on a boat. I'm sitting in my little apartment in Seattle, Washington, but you did get me on a boat last time. I think I was on a ferry boat heading somewhere.
0: (laughs) I I think that's right. Well, uh, thankful that I'm in a warm spot myself, and hopefully you're in a warm spot, Brady, and hopefully the listeners are too. Well, I'm Andrew Simon, and this is Temperature Check, uh, a new podcast from Grist. Temperature Check is a weekly show about climate, race, and culture. I'm just extremely thrilled about the opportunity this season to speak with a range of smart, inspiring people about how they're working on the climate crisis in one way or another. Today, my guest is Kendra Pierre-Lewis, longtime climate journalist now at Gimlet. That's coming up. But first, since it's our first episode, I wanted to bring in Grist CEO Brady Pinard-Walkinshaw, one of the smartest, most inspiring people I know
1: nice of you to say. I I appreciate that. Thank you.
0: You're welcome. And I mean those things even when you're not on a boat, Brady. Um, Brady, would you tell the fine listeners a little bit more about what we do here at Grist?
1: Absolutely. So Grist is a national, for those of you who don't know us, we're, we're a national media nonprofit. And we are really dedicated day in and day out to telling a story about what a just more sustainable future can look like for the planet and for all of us make it our home. And that is a story about what the future of clean energy looks like. It's about racial justice. It's thinking about how do we build a a world that, that has built infrastructure that's green in our communities? How do we think about air quality and pollution and toxics? And how do we tell a story about what a better future looks like after carbon, where I believe that humanity will be much happier and has the potential to build a society that is much more equitable.
0: Yeah. And, you know, Brady, you and I, I feel like for several years now, frankly, we've had conversations around how Gris can intentionally bring more voices to the climate story. And I think under your leadership uh, and the leadership of others at the organization, that's that's already started to happen. So I, I feel like this podcast is really the next chapter, if you will, of Gris being able to bring some voices uh, to the stories that we do.
1: Absolutely. I mean, I, I think for a lot of us in our own our own lives, I and mean, I grew up I grew up in a small farming community in Washington State, and my mom immigrated here from Cuba. My my dad worked in agriculture, and I I think that when you when I have early memories of what it looks like to think about environmental issues, to me a lot of it is about like pesticide drift and toxics and things that were impacting Latinos who were working in fields. And I think that people have been fighting against environmental pollution for decades and decades and decades, and that. A lot of those fights have often been led by communities of color, people of color, leaders who've been most leaders of communities that have been most impacted by by pollution, by clean air, clean water. And I think the fights that we're seeing today, as we address the climate crisis, which is you know such an enormous crisis for humanity, it's one that once again, in order I believe to get to the solutions to solve these challenges, um, we do need to have more diverse leaders at the table, more voices, you know, folks who are impacted directly. Um, to be working on helping solve it
0: and when i was setting up the uh, description of the podcast i used the word culture and part of the transformation you're describing to this carbon-free uh, future is gonna there's a cultural piece to that too
1: when gris started it was a lot about there's this catchphrase of how do we make green second nature and and i i think that now as we as we're looking to where we need to go and we really are talking about a cultural shift I and mean, we've seen extraordinary change in humanity in different ways, obviously over the last several centuries, but a lot of those changes have come through shifts in culture. And by shifting culture to a place where people will believe in and aspire to and act toward a world that is both fairer and and more just after we get past carbon, um, that's the kind of cultural shift that I think will be led by big bold ideas.
0: You just talked about a shift, and I'm just wondering. I mean, in this year 2020, are you are you starting to see some shift happen in the on the environmental side of things, kind of coming out of this ongoing uh, reckoning around racial injustice?
1: I think it's been a year that has both seen a lot of action and you know despair and pain, and kind of a, a revealing of things that a lot of people have known for a long time that were already in plain sight. But the kind of hope here is from a, I guess I would say also from a climate perspective, is that I think we're seeing things in a way that are much more connected than we ever have before. And I think we're seeing the relationships between COVID, for instance, that have just been so disproportionately impacting Black Americans. And we're seeing both the morbidity from COVID impacting Black communities, and particularly communities that at the same time have struggled with really high rates of air pollution that have had all sorts of negative impacts on social determinants and health outcomes. So, and those are, those are things we've known for a long time um, have a disproportionate impact. But I think that as we, as we think about race and health outcomes, police brutality, the, the movements that are working to solve these problems, I believe will also be some of the same movements that will be working to get us to a more, a more just future after carbon. So I, I think we're seeing a lot of connections that, that we hadn't in the past.
0: I think you're going to be joining us again, hopefully, this season, right?
1: Yeah, I, I'm, anytime. I'll, 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 I might be on a boat. I'm happy to, <laughs> I'm happy to, to, to get off the boat and come join the, join the podcast.
0: Well, fantastic. Uh, thank you so much, Brady, Pinara Walkinshaw, Gris CEO. Uh, thank you so much for joining us today. Thanks, Andrew. And coming up next, uh, my conversation with Kendra Pierre-Lewis, a longtime climate reporter who is currently at Gimlet Media. Uh, We'll talk to her about a few different things, including uh, a key climate takeaway from the 2018 film Black Panther. You heard that right. So stay with us. This is Temperature Check from Grist. All right. So as promised, we are here with Kendra Pierre-Lewis. She's currently a senior reporter at Gimlet Media, and she previously covered climate for The New York Times, You can find her bylines in the Washington Post and Popular Science as well. And she's here to talk to us today about a great new essay she wrote. So welcome in, Kendra.
2: Thanks, Andrew, for having me.
0: So the reason we brought you on is because you have a way of making climate change stories compelling, appealing, and even hopeful, right, sometimes? And that's important when we're talking about something as dense as climate change. You do that in a piece uh, in particular... Uh, That was recently published in the book All We Can Save. The piece is called Wakanda Doesn't Have Suburbs. Please go out and read the story if you haven't already. But let's start with Wakanda, the fictional African country in the movie Black Panther.
2: Wakanda forever!
0: RIP Chadwick Boseman. Why did you use Wakanda as a starting point for your essay?
2: And for the record, I wrote that before his passing. It was weird timing that he passed around the same time that that got published sort of broadly.
0: Well, I have to say this, even if it wasn't intended, it's a bit of a loving tribute, I think, to him and his work in the movie. Why did you use Wakanda as a starting point for your essay?
2: I mean, there are a couple of reasons. I think part of it is I I am sort of very interested in the stories that we tell ourselves and the narratives that we tell ourselves and how that sort of creates the societies that we live in. And I'm also a huge nerd who has watched all of the Marvel Cinematic Universe movies. And so <laughs> anyone who's seen like Black Panther like eight or nine times, like I have, it was just kind of a natural fit. Like it's, it was something that was on my mind. Um, and I love, I think, as a piece kind of highlights generally, I'm a big fan of like science fiction. Um, so I've seen a lot of movies <laughs> kind of across the genre and it, And I love it, but I also recognize that there's something kind of incredibly flawed from the fact that so much of the the genre that I love is very sort of dystopian, and Wakanda wasn't.
0: Yeah, and maybe if you could break down uh, this idea of the suburbs and how carbon emissions in the suburbs are different than they are in cities, and again, how this all traces back to Wakanda.
2: Sure. So the easiest thing to think about is that when you move to from a city to a suburb, generally, your carbon footprint goes up, and it goes up for a number of reasons. Generally, homes in suburbs tend to be single-family homes, but even when they're apartment buildings, they still tend to be somewhat larger, so you have a much larger space that you need to heat and cool. Generally, what differentiates a suburb from like a small town is that there, there aren't that many jobs in the suburbs, so people living in the suburb usually work somewhere nearby in a larger city, so you're adding transportation mileage, Right. And then there's a fact of, like, where the subway is itself, which is generally, like, if there were no suburb there, there would be open space, green space, whatever sort of preexisted human habitation there. So uh, there's a a dark joke that, like, we often name subdivisions for the habitat that they've destroyed, right? Um, So there's that other element, too, of when you kind of put them all together together. how How big your the space is, how you navigate that space and that and the space itself you end up with a human system or location that is incredibly harmful to the planet just by the sheer scale of it
0: and I'm just thinking too, in the era of covid i mean there's already some evidence that uh some people are moving out of cities and into suburbs right, so this is something that is a bit prescient on the part of you as the author of the story and uh, the filmmakers, right? Kind of looking into this future where there could be some kind of moving back to the suburbs in the near future, right?
2: Yeah, and I mean, uh, I feel like as someone who also just recently moved because of COVID, I, uh, but I openly tell people I'm moving back. This is like, I don't think we should hold people to the standards of what they're doing during a pandemic to get by. Sure, um, I think some people... It sped up the decision making that they were already going to do. So people who are going to move to the suburbs, you know, in a year or two have decided that now is the moment and they're doing it. We also have to recognize that there's an incredible class privilege in your ability to move anywhere right now. You have to have um, an income and, you know, savings in order to do it. So it's still a relatively limited and kind of rarefied class of people who can make those decisions. But at the same time, we know that the higher your income is, the larger your carbon footprint tends to be. Um, and so that, of course, is feeding into it.
0: Yeah, and there's something that is very hopeful about your piece and this vision that you're talking about in Wakanda. So I'm just wondering if you're intentionally using Wakanda and Black Panther as a frame because of the connection to entertainment and pop culture.
2: Yeah, so, uh, and this pains me to some extent, but the movie The Day After Tomorrow is one of the most effective pieces of climate. And I say this lovingly, propaganda in terms of getting people engaged on the issues of climate change, even though almost everything about that movie is factually incorrect. Like, (laughs) none of it withstands scientific scrutiny, but it's like the gateway drug of movies um, for climate change for a lot of people. And so, you know, that's one of the things that I've been thinking a lot over the past year and even within the pandemic is the degrees to which the stories that we tell ourselves and the narratives that we see on screen shape our perception of the possible and shape our perception of, like, the information that we're taking in from other places. And in the case of Wakanda, the thing that I loved, and I think you can see in the piece, um, uh, especially in writing the piece, I, like, kind of framed by frame (laughs) advanced over the opening sequence because the first time I saw it, I was just like, holy shit, there are no suburbs. And then, you know, other people have sort of written about that aspect of it, too. And I researched, I looked into some of that when I was writing the piece. But the thing that really i took away from it was that it was this amazing melding of traditional african societies and incredible futuristic things and they didn't have to throw away who they were in order to embrace this hyper futuristic reality like it was a melding of the two and it was a choice right so like they didn't have suburbs they don't have paved roads um But it's hard to look at Wakanda and be like, oh, well, they're backwards, right? Like, like you can't do that, right? And so um, recognizing that, like, the future of humanity is not this, like, false choice between everything sort of sterile and kind of the Star Trek hyper-tectopia or, like, all of us moving back into caves and not, like, loving hobbit holes, but, like, bear caves, Uh, like there are other options for us, and I thought that that movie was one of the best visual encapsulations of that that I've I've seen in a, maybe ever.
0: I was left feeling like we're we're kind of sleeping on Black and Brown people as visionaries for a safer, healthier, cleaner future when it comes to the planet. Right? I just feel like that's something that is uh, really brought to the fore in your story, and it it left me feeling like I would love to you know read more stories. Uh, consume more content where the, the visionaries are from voices that aren't traditionally heard across media. You know, one thing that strikes me about your new podcast, How to Save a Planet, with Dr. Ayana Elizabeth Johnson and Gimlet founder Alex Bloomberg, is that there's some joy and there's some hope built into the stories you're telling, right, uh, about climate change and progress. And I've just wondered, how do you all approach climate change without ignoring the sobering realities? Uh, and are you intentionally trying to bring in some hope and optimism?
2: We're probably 50-50 Team Hope. Uh, I'm definitely not on Team Hope, ironically. (laughs) Like, I don't. I hate that question. Um, I think that what makes How to Save a Planet unique, and I think what you're picking up on, is that everything that we choose to cover, we're choosing to cover it through a solutions lens. So recognizing that, like, climate change is a problem, and some of it is baked in, but that there are still things that we can do to act on it. And there are people out in the world who are trying to implement these things. And we're going to help you find the people and find the resources that are doing these things. And as a listener, you will hopefully learn some new things about climate change that doesn't completely bum you out, although some of it will. um, But at the end of the episode, you will walk away with the idea that there are things that you can do and there are multiple points of entry into helping the planet with climate change. I don't know if this is damn phrase or not, but one of the, I felt very proud, um, is an episode that I produced, which was this episode, um, it's called Unnatural Disasters, and it's about climate-related disasters and how we deal with them. Because one of the things that I learned is that you shouldn't buy a pre-made preparedness kit or go bag, because the thinking through of the process of making one is almost as important as the bag itself. Um, and it went live sort of the same week that Oregon, unfortunately, was very catastrophically on fire. And a friend who had spent several years sort of living in the parts of Oregon or near the parts of Oregon that burned recently texted me and was like, I just listened to your episode. And given everything that we've been hearing lately, it didn't make me feel worse. So that's an accomplishment. <laughs> and I was like, yes, yes. <laughs> Any time someone listens to a thing I think that you've created about climate change and they don't feel worse because of it is a unique gift, I think. And I think that's one of the things that we're kind of very cognizant of and aware of is that it is easy. And, you know, my Twitter handle is gloom as my beat. So, like, there's an element of, like, it is very easy to kind of get lost in the darkness. And what we're not trying to do is be this false source of light. This isn't like everything's going to work out or... No disrespect to Dr. King, but I don't know if I necessarily believe that the arc bends towards justice, but it is saying that like there there is a middle ground <laughs> between doing nothing and pretending it doesn't exist or living in this sort of dark existential panic. and we're really trying hard to be that middle ground
0: with your background as a reporter, I'm just curious, uh, you know is, is it a shift at all for you when it comes to offering things that people can do or actions that people can take?
2: I think what we're doing is we're kind of filling that gap of getting people to understand that being a citizen in this country means being engaged. And these are the ways in which you can get engaged. But what we're not doing is we're not giving people a script. We're not saying you should go to a planning board meeting and say X, Y, and Z. We're not saying support this project, but don't support that project. You know what I mean? We're not saying go out and protest this pipeline. Um, What we're doing is we're telling people how to be informed citizens. And that's kind of like Democracy 101. And I don't see how that's not journalism.
0: Another thing I wanted to ask you about, Kendra, is this powerful piece you wrote last year about experiencing racism in the newsroom. There's a really powerful quote, Uh, these are your words, the psychological cost of being the only minority in a newsroom, or one of only a few, is often subtle. And I'm just wondering, how do you, Kendra Pierre-Lewis, remain resilient, being someone who is on the doom and gloom beat, who has experienced racism in the workplace, and who is just a human being trying to live in this world in 2020?
2: I have a very expensive therapist.
0: Hey.
2: <laughs> but yeah, um my therapist is very expensive and worth every penny. <laughs>
0: And do you get outdoors? I think I heard you say on a recent episode that you literally have hugged trees.
2: I have literally hugged trees. I'm I'm in kind of a chaotic situation because I just moved. But part of why I just moved is to get outdoors more. I went apple picking a couple weeks ago, which is an incredibly socially distanced activity. And I'm planning and um, I'm going hiking in two weeks. And I'm planning as soon as I have furniture in my apartment and I'm a little bit more settled A huge component of my life is getting out pretty much seven days a week, whenever possible. I bought snowshoes for the first time, so I'm excited to do some snowshoeing. Oh,
0: there you go. Yeah, I know. I feel like I got to get out and do some uh, cross-country skiing out here in the Northwest. (laughs) All right. Uh, Well, again, this is Temperature Check from Grist. I'm your host, Andrew Simon. And for the closing segment of each show, we're going to do something a little whimsical and a little offbeat with each guest. For this week, we have Kendra Pierre-Lewis from Gimlet Media on the show. Kendra, let's talk music. Earlier this year, you put together a list called the Hot 10 for the New York Times. Uh, this was a piece that was about songs that mentioned climate change. And let's do a quick dive into climate change songs. We're coming with heat here. <laughs> uh, Kendra, there are a lot of songs people will recognize like Smash Mouth's 1999 hit All-Star uh, and Childish Gambino's 2018 hit Feels Like Summer. Uh, were there any commonalities you found among the songs while you were putting this list together?
2: As I kind of point out in the piece, there was so much
0: Pitbull.
1: Of-
2: so much. <laughs> I was unaware of how much Pitbull just drops climate change references into his music until I went through a list of something like 4,000 songs. A task that I recommend nobody undertake. He named an album Climate Change and another one Global Warming.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Why do you think Pitbull is hitting on climate so much? I mean, I think you talk about it a little in the story, so I think I know the answer. But you know, why why climate for Pitbull?
2: He told me a couple things. Um, One is that he learned about climate change from his mother. And it's also helpful to recognize that he is from Miami. And so he's seeing kind of the impacts of climate change sort of firsthand. And he's aware that it's an issue. But he also told me that he felt like if he wrote an album about climate change, that nobody would want to listen to it. It's like taking your medicine. But that if he sprinkles it kind of throughout his music, that people will Google it and they'll look it up and they will start wondering. And maybe they will come to their own conclusions.
0: And speaking of that, uh, which artist would you like to see record the next big climate song?
2: Uh, Has Cardi done a, a climate song?
0: Oh, I don't know. That'd be dope. I mean, Cardi and Meg the Stallion, maybe maybe some of that uh, environmental work that Meg the Stallion has been talking about might rub off on Cardi. Maybe they could do a WAP part two for the climate.
2: Yeah, I was so so frustrated because as far as I can tell, she didn't on her debut album. She did not do a climate change song, but she did have, what did she? Oh, she did do that beach cleanup and I'm completely blanking on on the language that she used for it. And and it was interesting about that list is we made it the top 10. But ultimately, I think there were a total of like 140 or 155 songs. But we just sort of narrowed it down to kind of those 10. And one of the things that was really interesting is you kind of found them across genres, um, including genres or, of music that I don't, like bands that I had not heard of, but have large followings that I hadn't heard of because I'm old and tired. Um,
0: <laughs> was there, I was just, so in that line, was there a song that just missed a cut was there a song you were like really strongly lobbying for and the and your editor was like no it can't be the top 11 it's got to be top 10 Ken, uh
2: n- there wasn't one that i was strongly lobbying for there was um little nods x had one with um one of the dudes from blink 182 where the song didn't strongly suggest climate change but the video did um and there were a few songs kind of along those lines and then there were ones that i just sort of forgot ex- i had didn't know there was there were ones that were terrible will i am had a really terrible climate change song in the late 2000s so did miley cyrus um i could have done like a pretty compelling worst 10 list as well
0: (laughs) (laughs) well maybe it's not too late for that i mean
2: i still have the data somewhere but yeah (laughs) and that was kind of the The most interesting thing is that over time, you could kind of see the songs flipping from being on the B-side, essentially, to like being the main attraction. And you kind of saw that it it felt like it kind of really came to that culmination with Billie Eilish.
0: That's great. Well, Kendra, uh, I know you are a busy person for all the right reasons. So thank you so much for your time. It has been a pleasure to speak with you today.
2: Thank you so much for having me.
0: Kendra pierre Lewis, again, longtime climate reporter currently at Gimlet, uh, working on the podcast How to Save a Planet. there it is we did it the first episode the first season of the grist podcast big thanks to kendra pierre lewis for kicking off temperature checks first episode uh please make sure to follow her on twitter at kendra writes temperature check is a podcast from grist produced in collaboration with reasonable volume it's hosted by me andrew simon my co-host today was grist ceo and boat aficionado sometimes brady pinera Walkinshaw. It's produced by Brianna Flores, with editing by Elise Hugh and Rachel Swaby. Caroline Saunders is Grist's chief of staff and this podcast marketing lead. Sound engineering is by Mark Bush. Grist is a nonprofit reader-supported newsroom covering climate justice and solutions. If you'd like to support what we do, you can rate, subscribe, and tell all your friends to subscribe as well to Temperature Check. You can also help to sustain our work by going to grist.org slash donate. That's G-R-I-S-T dot org slash donate we'll see you next week it's going to be quite a week we'll see you then goodbye everyone